Good morning. Um, it is a great, great joy uh, for Sarah and I, my wife, um, who I believe is back with our daughter right now. Uh, she's in a new place, but um, to be here with you all this morning, um, our daughter is two years old, and um, I tell you, and, and thank you for that prayer, because I started to think about the evil in this world, and I started to think about um, even the past six weeks um, at our mission, um, having gone to two different funerals for young men um, who left our program. Uh, one graduated, went home with his wife, um, spent a year uh, with his wife, and addiction overcame again, uh, and it cost him his life. Um, and that was just earlier this week, and uh, about five weeks ago or so, uh, another young man, uh, third time trying to overcome addiction, coming into our program, um, goes back out, has two young, beautiful children, um, ends up in Cincinnati and ends up dead. And, uh, and so we think about, uh, not to start off on a somber mood here, but we think about realities of life, uh, the realities of death and darkness and sin. Um, again, it's a great joy uh, to be able to rest in this place for a few moments and rest in the truths of the gospel uh, of Christ. And so uh, so thank you. Thank you for even the opportunity to, to be able to share, uh, share this morning. Um, as I uh, get the opportunity every so often to, uh, to fill a pulpit, um, I always think back um, and I've sung this to my, my daughter. I will not sing. I promise you don't want to hear that. Uh, but I've sung this to my daughter uh, in private. Um, and um, and even this morning as we were coming to church, um, our daughter says, I want to go to church and, and uh, learn about Jesus as, as best as she can. And so I, we pray that she will say that uh, for the rest of her days. But uh, uh, but I think about this and, and I always open with uh, the third verse of a, a very popular hymn. Uh, it says, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Um, and, and that, that verse um, sums up the glory of the gospel, that our sin was nailed on the cross. And so uh, I just uh, always want to start there, um, because that's where everything rests. Uh, is in the person and the work of Christ. Um, but this morning, uh, we're going to look at history. Um, I, I have uh, not always, but I've come to enjoy uh, some historical uh, context of, of the scriptures and understanding culture and understanding, uh, again, history, whether that be uh, positive history or negative history. And, uh, but even looking at the scriptures and understanding the, uh, the covenant uh, of God in the Old Testament and how Christ uh, fulfills uh, the covenant and, and establishes a new covenant. And so uh, we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we won't really go through the entire chapter, but we'll certainly talk through that. Before we get started, I'd like to uh, open in prayer. So if you'll pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Uh, we are thankful um, that we even have breath uh, and life today. Uh, God, thankful for this church, uh, for not only their support of the ministry, but their support in ministry in this community. Um, God, is such a blessing uh, to witness uh, your church, your bride, um, actively engaged uh, with folks that don't know you, um, actively building 
uh, and edifying uh, the body uh, to be sent out, um, as Corinthians would say, uh, as ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, uh, Father, for your glory, uh, so that people might uh, repent and trust you, that you might draw uh, men and women and children unto yourself. Uh, so, Father, I just thank you uh, for uh, just your church. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thankful for how we can learn and grow in it by your spirit. Uh, and I pray just for the few moments that we open it this morning uh, that we will be encouraged um, as Paul was encouraging uh, the believers and the saints um, in Ephesus. I pray that we will be encouraged as well. In your name that we pray. Amen. Um, a little bit of background into uh, really why and how uh, this passage in Ephesians sort of, um, I really think, uh, was kind of led this direction. And um, Andy knows this. Um, back in October, my wife and I were able to travel to Israel. Um, it was a very um, eye-opening experience, uh, to say the least. I could probably talk for hours about uh, the experiences that we had there. But um, I think one of the most interesting things um, as you go from uh, whether it be Caesarea on the uh, Maritime, which is on the Mediterranean, and you travel through Nazareth and you go down to the Galilean region. And uh, now in the Galilee, you're seeing really where a lot of Jesus' ministry is taking place. Um, and then you go down through the Dead Sea region. So you go from lush, lavish, green things uh, to desert. Um, and you see uh, different areas there uh, in Qumran where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which dated um, you know, the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, way back, like I think almost almost a thousand years um, is uh, was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, took the whole book of Isaiah uh, and other fragments of Old Testament scriptures. And so and a crucial, crucial find for uh, the authority of the scriptures. But you, you come into Jerusalem and it's an entire world unto itself. It's vastly different than anything else in the country. Um, and what you see when you come in there, um, if you've seen any modern day, obviously, pictures of Jerusalem, you're going to see the Dome on the Rock is probably the, the most visible uh, structure uh, in Jerusalem. And the Dome on the Rock is a, a Muslim shrine um, that is there on top of what was the old temple of Jerusalem. And so if you walk around uh, the walls of the temple and you're maybe you're standing on the Mount of Olives, uh, and you're looking down into the temple, you actually see different types of rock. Um, and that shows where uh, the rock on the bottom is actually Herod the Great's building. That that was his structure. The rock on the top was in, I think, 600-something uh, A.D. when the Turkish uh, rulers came in and rebuilt that temple. And so you can see as they excavated, you can actually see where the Romans in A.D. 70 destroyed the temple. They pushed over the rock, and so as they excavated, you have boulders all around the temple, and that's where the Romans, and there were the boulders of Herod, the great temple. Uh, that's where the Romans would destroy in AD 70. And so as we sit and we think about that, and you, and you visualize that, and you start to think about Old Testament history, and you start to think about what has taken place um, in that particular location, um, but as a Christian... You carry that a step forward and, and continuing to be on the Mount of Olives, if you can visualize, and, and most of the Bibles that we probably have have maps in the back, and you can kind of see this and visualize this, but you're looking at the temple, but then right beyond the temple is the traditional place of Golgotha, the traditional place of where Christ was crucified, 
Uh, if you look over uh, to your left uh, from the Mount of Olives, you'll see where Christ was likely uh, standing before the high priest uh, just before going to crucifixion. And you'll see uh, just the realities of the Passover, the realities of the final week of Christ's life, uh, going down into the Garden of Gethsemane and then over to uh, the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and then uh, being judged in, in front of Pilate. You'll see all of that from the Mount of Olives, from this one location. And you see, again, as a Christian, that temple doesn't mean as much anymore. That temple doesn't mean as much anymore to you. And so as you walk around, it's great to see, it's great to touch, it's great to feel, it's great to, to have an understanding, but when you get to the end of the day, that temple doesn't mean as much anymore. And so as I think about Ephesians, and I think about a little bit of the context of what uh, Paul is writing to the believers and the saints, as we see um, even in the first verses, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are the saints who are in Ephesus? The saints are actually those outside of Judaism. The saints are Gentiles. So Paul here is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Uh, and the reason we know that is because as we continue through, if we were to read one through really uh, to the end of two, uh, we would see all of these arguments being made showing that the readers of this book are not people who are in uh, Israel. These are folks that are outside of Israel. Um, and so, again, as an individual, as a Gentile, standing in the Holy Land, standing in the, the city of God, so to speak, um, and thinking about the realities of what's going on and what the temple means uh, for those who are continuing to practice Judaism and how that temple actually means nothing, because it, the temple is now the body of Christ and the church, Ephesians has a greater meaning now. And, and what we're going to look in Ephesians 2.11 through the end of the chapter in 22 it will have a greater meaning for those who are outside of Israel. And so as we see coming through uh, in the book of Ephesians, we understand that Paul, again, wrote it uh, likely, um, some scholars would say, likely from Rome. Uh, we see in other passages in Ephesians that he said, Paul is saying, I am a prisoner of Christ. And so we, we assume and we think uh, that, Christ, that Paul excuse me, was writing this uh, to the, the saints in Ephesus while in prison for the gospel in Rome. Um, we also understand that uh, again, the, the Gentile audience of this, it's a, it's a completely different nature, a completely different purpose for this letter. It's in a purpose to encourage the Gentile believers in Christ, to encourage uh, in, in, in who they are and what they are. And so we see a number of things in the first uh, one and a half chapters that, that Paul's doing. He's reminding them that they are now adopted into Christ. He's reminding them that they have redemption in Christ. They have forgiveness in Christ. There's a revelation now that Gentiles have uh, in Christ. Uh, there's an inheritance that they have in Christ, and then they are sealed by the Spirit in Christ. So you're a Gentile audience. Say you're a saint in Ephesus. You're a Gentile audience. Um, that should be a great encouragement um, as Paul begins this letter, knowing that at one time, you were outside of this faith. You were outside of Israel. That you were that that God's promises of old were not intended at that moment in that time for you. So that's a great encouragement that we bear. And then we come into chapter two, 
and he says, you were dead in trespasses. And so um, I, I, I spoke on uh, 2, 1 through 10 at the shelter not too long ago, um, and, and, I, and I picked that one particular passage uh, without really, in complete honesty, without really looking at the, uh, the greater context of what was going on. And so what does it mean now for a Gentile audience to then hear, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that describes, again, in this audience, that describes a Gentile of old. That describes a, 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 a someone who's outside uh, of the nation of Israel of old. Um, and yet at the same time, Paul, an Israelite, uh, a person of Israel, uh, brings in and says, we all once were this. We all once were this at, at one time. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So if we read 1 through 2, 10, um, many of our Bibles, mine included, probably have a few different heading breaks. We obviously have chapter breaks, we have verse breaks, but we probably have uh, a few different heading breaks. We have to understand, obviously, that uh, when the scriptures were originally written, these were not there. Uh, these were added at one time. And so um, I really think uh, the intention here would actually be to read 1 1 through 2 10. Uh, and the reason why is because, and this is going to be the passage that we're going to uh, look at, uh, the word therefore is a transition word taking place here. So 1 1 starts, there's no other transition that we see that I've been able to see um, in this passage of, uh, of scripture. You see in 15 chapter 1 for this reason. And so it's a continued argument uh, that's happening uh, in the first uh, one and a half chapters. But when we come to 11, you see this word, therefore. And so Paul's argument leading up to this point is leading us to the rest of the chapter. And so we're going to we're gonna look at these uh, next few verses here. Uh, so if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll, I'll begin in verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a great message to a Gentile believing population. That is a great, great message uh, to the audience in which Paul is writing. But there's a couple of things that we look at, looking first in verses 11 and 12, um, that we have to see and, and, and maybe uh, understand from, uh, from what Paul is teaching and, and, and why this is so important. And so the first thing is that uh, we understand from history that circumcision is a sign of a covenant. It's a sign of a covenant that God has made with his people. We know that uh, from back in Genesis 17, we see the establishment of Abraham. Uh, we see the covenant uh, being established in that all the male, uh, males and male children will be circumcised. And it says even here that it's uh, by the flesh, in the flesh, by hands, um, and that it will be the sign of God's covenant to his people. And so we see the, 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 the trek of Abraham's life and, and, and the covenant that uh, a, a mighty nation and nations of people will come uh, through this covenant. Uh, and They will be his people uh, and God will be their God. Uh, and there will be a certain um, inherited rights that these people have um, that have been bespo- bestowed upon them uh, because of God's goodness and his grace uh, and his fulfillment and faithfulness. Uh, to his promises in that covenant. We see, um, even in Genesis 17, we see that, that God says that kings will come through your line. If we go to Matthew chapter 1, we know there's a genealogy of Jesus. The other synoptics give a similar genealogy. I think Luke is a little bit later in 3 or 4, uh, but we know that there's a genealogy that's presented. So Matthew 1, uh, we start with Abraham and we work our way down to Christ. And so there's uh, I believe it's 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then there's 14 generations uh, from David, David to Jesus. So there are kings in the line of Abraham that we see, that we know, that point all the way back to this promise, that point all the way back to this covenant that's being made. And so the same thing that we see in verses 11 and 12 is that the Gentiles of old are pointing to the unbelie- or are pointing to the unbelievers of new, uh, and what I mean by that, and what uh, what we're looking at is you look at some of the characteristics uh, that we read in the first part of chapter two, uh, and then we even understand from the first part of uh, eleven into twelve uh, is that they were once alienated, they were once outside of that covenant of old, that covenant that's established in Genesis seventeen. That covenant that's an everlasting covenant, that covenant that promises the land of Canaan, the the covenant that promises uh, uh, an established nation on the earth, uh, Paul is reiterating and emphasizing to his audience, remember you are outside of this covenant. Remember that you are outside of this covenant. But I think the other interesting thing that we see in these first couple of verses, too, is that the Gentile audience must have been educated in Israel's history. They must have been educated in Israel's history. And the reason why is they would not have understood what that meant unless Paul knew that they were educated in Israel's history. 
that would make no sense if if they had heard that. It would make no sense um, if they if they did not have a knowledge of Israel's history. And so, as I started to think through that, I started to think some of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, and we won't go to all of them, but uh, but let's think about the Exodus. Let's think about the uh, uh, you know the the captivity among Egypt and and, and God uh, appointing Moses and leading uh, his people out of captivity and out of slavery uh, in Egypt. And there's a passage in Exodus 14, and it's verses 24 through 25, uh, where uh, the 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 uh, I guess the conclusion of uh, this fleeing is going to take place, where where God basically destroys the Egyptians as the uh, Israelites are fleeing, and and the scriptures would say in those verses that uh, the 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 Egyptians said that God is fighting on their behalf against the Egyptians. Let's turn back. Um, in that passage. So, uh, so let's think about what happens after that. There's obviously the destruction of the Egyptians that are pursuing Israel. Uh, and then think about Israel, or excuse me, think about the Egyptian side of that. Do you think they ever shared that verbally? Do you think that was in their history books as their generations were going and going that, that we had Israel as our slaves, but, but Moses led them out of, out of Israel and, and, and our armies were destroyed and, uh, and, and their God was fighting on their behalf. Of course, of course. There's a lot of oral tradition uh, that took place at this time. There's a lot of passing down of information that took place at this time. So, of course. So did the Egyptians know about the God of Israel? Absolutely. The Egyptians knew about the God of Israel. And the, and, and, and the covenant and the protection uh, and the battling on, on their behalf. Let's think about the Philistines in 1 Samuel. Uh, we see a couple of different uh, really interesting passages. First uh, is 1 Samuel 5. Uh, the Philistines uh, take the ark of God. We know it's the dwelling place of God. Uh, they put it in the same place as their own God. Uh, it's Dagon, Dagon, however you want to pronounce that. I don't know. It's okay. Um, but they're in the same place. Um, and what do we see? We see that it's face down. This idol is face down the next morning. And they're afraid, and they don't know what happened. And so they stand it upright. The next morning they come in. It's face down again, head cut off, arms cut off, and now they're afraid. And they want to get rid of this thing because they don't know what's going on. But we carry that forward. We all have probably heard the story of David and Goliath. Uh, and, and again, in our, in our trip uh, that we took to Israel, we were able to stand uh, on what they called Tel Azekah, uh, it's called Tell because that's where they started the dig. Um, so they, they kind of hover over top of these locations. That's how they find these things. You see kind of rock patterns, uh, and you're like, well, that's not normal. Uh, and so you start digging, and then that's when you start to excavate uh, towns and uh, different things that are going on. And so we were standing on Tel Azeka. Uh You have Gath behind us, which we know uh, that Goliath was from the town of Gath, and so it's it's not uh, you know, probably a mile behind us, and then you're looking over the Valley of Elah, which you know that's where uh, David and Goliath took place, and you see a stream and a brook, and uh, you like to kind of imagine while you're there that, that David may have gotten his stones even from uh, from this location because he's coming, uh, you know, from uh, a far-off place. He comes to the front of the battle lines, uh, and you know that, you know, you don't think he's probably running around with stones or anything uh, in his pocket. So you, you like to think that that might be a place where he, he picked one of those up. 
But if you read through the story in 1 Samuel 17 and you understand, again, the conclusion of that, which is David defeats Goliath, cuts his head off and, uh, and delivers it, uh, and now the, the whole nation is rejoicing, do you think the Philistines knew the God of Israel? Do you think the Philistines understood the covenant that God had with his people? Absolutely. Absolutely they did. Then you go to Daniel 3, Daniel 6. Um, and we'll, we'll move on after that. But just to reiterate again, these are Gentile nations interacting with God's people, walking away knowing you have to think that they know who the God of Israel is. Daniel 3, Daniel 6, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and the lions then. There are passages in there, uh, Daniel 6 specifically, verses 25 through 28, where there is an acknowledgement not just a, oh goodness, like what's going on, but there is an acknowledgement of God. There's an acknowledgement of the God of Israel uh, in these instances when, uh, when, when the protections come uh, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and Daniel, and Melanie's den. Um, they know that, that, that God is the God of Israel uh, and that there's a covenant. And so bringing that all back uh, to this, do you think that the Gentiles in Ephesus who pre-Christ, obviously, were living as Gentiles, do you think they might have ever heard of this or interacted with someone in Israel or interacted or knew uh, who the God of Israel was? Well, there's some education here, and there's some indication here, I should say, uh, that they were educated in this history at one time or another. And it may have been Paul, uh, when he planted the church, it may have been uh, other believers, it may have been, it does. I don't know, but there, there has to be, uh, there's evidence here that they knew the history of Israel because it wouldn't make sense otherwise. And so gen- Gentiles of today, again, thinking about how the Gentiles of old are pointing to the unbelievers, unbelievers of new, Gentiles embody what an unbelieving world exhibits. There's no hope and they're without God in the world. As we we're uh, talking just uh, just before I came up and uh, you know, we talked about how uh, our mission, Louisville Rescue Mission, um, has been providing needs and different things for, for different people for a hundred plus years. Um, and yet the greatest gift that we can offer is the hope that we have in Christ. And so the Gentiles of old who, as Paul is stating here, had no hope and were without God in this world, let's think about our unbelieving uh, friends and neighbors and community uh, and see do they share those same characteristics? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without hope and without God in this world. Now, there's a common grace that is extended to them. There's a common grace that's extended to all of us and that we have life and breath and there's things that are good that can happen and that, and that uh, certainly is not debatable or argued against. Um, but do they have the hope of salvation in Christ? The hope that you were once alienated and now you are drawn near. And that's no. That's known. And so whether it's Louisville Rescue Mission or Scarlet Hope or, or whatever other ministry in the community, whether it's the ministry to the hotel across the street, which I guess is not Economy Inn anymore, um, whatever it is, whatever it is, if someone is outside of Christ, they are very similar to the, to the Gentiles of old. Very similar. The same, same thing. And yet there is a great encouragement uh, that Paul is encouraging the Gentile believers in, and that great encouragement is the person and work of Christ. 
And Christ is the mediator of the old and the new. Christ is the mediator uh, of the old and the new. And so we see that in 13 uh, through 18. It says, But now in Christ, Jesus, you, were once who were, or you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in this passage what we see is that Christ eliminates Gentile alienation. He eliminates Gentile alienation. Again, thinking about the history, we won't rehash that, but thinking about the history in Christ, the alienation that Gentiles once once had is eliminated. It no longer exists. I think about Romans 11 and I think about passages of scripture where it talks about Gentiles being grafted in, being grafted and brought into the fold. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, again, putting ourselves back on the Mount of Olives, um, in my mind before we went, I thought that um, everything was a, a really far distance. I never really studied or understood how close things were, but you're standing on the Mount of Olives and about, uh, you know, a five minute walk down the hill, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and then a 10 minute walk, you're in the temple. Uh, so all of this is happening in one compact place. But if you go in the Garden of Gethsemane today, um, archaeologists, uh, and I guess those would be arborists or whoever studies trees, uh, um, have dated uh, some of the olive trees in the garden back to about 400 AD. So not quite back to Christ, obviously, but that's really old trees. Really, really old trees. But it is very interesting in that there are new ones that are integrated into these old ones. And so the picture of Romans 11 comes alive in that moment where you see old and new. You see this grafting taking place. And so you can imagine at this time in this writing, and there were a lot of different areas where uh, things that we read over like milk and honey and other different things. And then when you're there and you learn about those things, it's like, wow, that's a completely different uh, idea than I thought of or a completely different concept. And this was one of those moments that we had as we looked in the Garden of Gethsemane and knowing what took place there and knowing what the uh, impending uh, result was going to be, you see grafting in takes place, taking place uh, in the midst of that. And so it makes sense that Paul would use that as an analogy. Christ's sacrifice brings peace with God. I think that's a, a pretty known thing for believers that, uh, that as we uh, repent and we trust Christ, Christ draws us to himself, uh, that there is a reconciliation that takes place there. There is a peace that is restored. We understand from Genesis 1 that God created it was good. Uh, Genesis 2, 3, there's brokenness. There's a broken relationship that takes place. Uh, it's severed. Um, there's no peace in union. There's no peace in harmony. Uh, and yet in Christ, he brings peace. Um, in Romans 5, we understand that there's justification by faith. Um, that we are deemed innocent in Christ. And this has now been extended to the Gentiles as well, this peace um, that Christ brings. As I think again about um, going back to the Gentiles of old or similar to the unbelievers of today, is there peace in an unbeliever's life? 
and there's not. There's no peace uh, in an unbeliever's life. Um, and Christ in him and his sacrifice offers us that peace. His sacrifice brought finality to the law and commandments for Israel and established a new covenant. So I know that Christ, and, and, and as I, I read through this, I started to, to have to think through, but Christ said he didn't abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He came to uphold it. Um, he also said that the law uh, and the prophets are all summed up into two commandments, to love God with everything that we are uh, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the question would be, Paul here is writing, though it would seem that he abolished, in verse 15, abolished the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And by making peace. So if we if we took those, um, that you could see somewhat of a contrast between the two, uh, but there really is no contrast here. Christ abolished what was required and necessary of old to bring in what was new in the Gentiles. So he didn't abolish the the whole law. Christ says that he didn't. He came to fulfill it, and the fulfillment of that was. To to bring the new so that all might be brought into the fold, that all might be a part of Israel, no longer needing to be circumcised in the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. And so that is what Christ is offering the Gentiles, and that is what Paul is encouraging this audience, this Gentile audience in, is that Christ got a, did away with the things that were required uh, for only Israel uh, to be in the fold of God. And so now they have access to that peace and that access to that salvation. And Christ brings access to God the Father, to both Israel and Gentile. He brings access. He intercedes on our behalf um, so that we might have union with the Father, um, both for Jew and for Gentile. Uh, so the Galatians 3 passage that was read um, earlier uh, talks about there's no slave uh, nor free, there's no Jew nor Greek. Um, all are united in Christ. I mean, that's a very powerful passage um, that accompanies what Paul is reminding um, the saints of Ephesus is that it does not matter that those in Christ are all one and they're all unified. And so in verse 19 through 21 in Ephesians 2, we see that all believers now inherit the blessings of Israel. All believers now inherit the blessings of Israel. So verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Again, all believers now inherit the blessings of Israel. Previous passages, we talked about how the alienation uh, that existed, uh, the strangers, the aliens is what it says in 19, but you're now fellow citizens. And I think one of the interesting things about this passage says um, built on in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what that tells us now is that all of the prophets and all of Old Testament narrative is now setting the foundation for a Gentile belief, for a Gentile belief. So the, the gospel of Christ 
rests all the way up uh, into the into Gentile belief that they now can rest in that history. They now can rest in that providence of God. They now can rest in the sovereignty and the planning of God uh, to bring about salvation among the Gentiles. And so we know that uncircumcised now leads to circumcision of the heart. We know there was a separation and now there's a unification. We know that there was no covenant with Gentiles into a new covenant that they inherit the blessings of Israel. We know that there was no hope that we've already talked about, and now there's eternal hope in Christ. Uh, we know that they're without God to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And now we know that they were not citizens. They were aliens, strangers, wandering, and now they have a heavenly heavenly home and, and, a, and, a, and an established relationship with Christ. And then finally, verse 22 says, The church which is believers, are now the new temple. And so we think about Old Testament history. We think about the ark that we've talked about already, the ark resting in the tabernacle. Uh, and then we think about the, the tabernacle almost being replaced by the temple. Uh, and we think about the temple as being the dwelling place of God and the place where sacrifices at the Passover were taken every year and uh, for both the sins of the priest and the sins of the people. Uh, and these structures were established uh, by God, and they were purposeful, and they 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 had uh, a meaning at that time. And yet, the conclusion of that is that that those things made by man are no longer relevant because now, in Christ, the temple is the church. The temple is His people. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, standing on that Mount of Olives and touching and seeing, and then walking down and touching those walls mean nothing. Those walls mean nothing anymore. They are, they are old. They are, they are rocks built by man. They served a, a biblical, godly purpose in their time. And yet in Christ, he abolished that. And it, and it means nothing. And so when you're sitting in the epicenter of, of Christianity uh, and Judaism, and then the third most uh, recognized shrine in uh, Islam, all in one location where you have those who are practiced Judaism go to the western walls uh, of the old temple because it's the closest they could get to the Holy of Holies because of political uh, environments and different things going on. Uh, and then those of Islam, uh, the Muslim, uh, I guess, education center owns the top of the uh, owns the top of the temple, uh, and so they've built their uh, mosque and shrine on top of that temple. And yet, uh, not a five minute walk up the hill, uh, you go to uh, the Holy Sepulchre, uh, or what they would call the traditional place of Golgotha. Uh, there's a second location uh, that they call the Garden Tomb that's not too far off as well, but uh, but tradition would say that that is the place of Christ. And so you're in this epicenter of religion, uh, of monotheism, uh, and yet all of those things don't matter anymore. When we entered the Holy Sepulchre, it was an interesting place because we were packed in there, uh, and people were trying to touch the rock that Christ might have been crucified on. And then you want to go down to the tomb and you want to stand in, in the place where Christ might have been buried. And yet when you walk out of there, you touch a rock and nothing's different. You look at a tomb and nothing's different. But the reality is, is that Christ isn't there. Christ is not there. So even that rock means nothing. Even that rock means nothing. It is a place upon which our Lord died and that's it. But Christ did not die so that we might touch a rock or worship a rock. Christ died that we might have salvation, both Jew and Gentile in him. 
that we might be transformed, uh, that our hearts might be changed, uh, that we might then, as the scriptures would say, live lives that are worthy of the gospel and live, live lives that point others uh, to himself. That is made possible because of God's sovereignty and his grace and his plan uh, for both Jew and Gentile to inherit the blessings that he established with Abraham that we read in, in Genesis 17. And so I want to close with a, a quote from G.K. Bale. It says, Christ has abolished that part of the law which divided Jew from Gentile so that they could become one. Gentiles no longer need to adapt the signs and customs of, na- of national Israel to become true Israelites. They do not need to move to geographical Israel to become Israelites, they, but they need only to move to Jesus, the true Israel. They do not need to be circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart by Christ's death, which is their true circumcision. Since it cuts them off from the old world and sets them apart to the new, Gentiles do not need to make pilgrimage to Israel's temple to get near to God, but they merely need to make pilgrimage to Jesus, the true temple, of which the Ephesian Christians were a part. How true of a statement that is, that all of those uh, structures and practices, um, as Jesus said, are summed up in loving God with everything that you are, mind, body, soul, spirit, everything that you are, and loving your neighbor as yourself so that others might be brought into the fold, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That is the great and glorious gospel that we have in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, uh, God, just in your word. Uh, Father, your word speaks for itself. Uh, Father, your word uh, demonstrates truth, proclaims truth. Uh, your revelation that you have given us uh, is authoritative and can be trusted. Um, Father, and it's just guides us to holiness and righteousness in Christ. Father, as we briefly looked at the course of history and the establishment of an old covenant with Israel and worked our way to a new covenant in Christ, and as Paul writing to the saints in Ephesus, understanding that those saints were predominantly Gentile saints who had no home and who were without hope, and without God, are now brought in. And so we understand and we're thankful and we are trusting in you uh, in that salvation. And Father, I pray uh, that as we minister in our communities, as we minister, uh, whether it be through mission or, or whatever the case may be, I pray that we will remember that the gospel is in fact available to all men and all women and all children, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what uh, race, no matter what uh, circumstance, Father, your grace is sufficient enough to save all those who call upon your name. And so, Father, I pray as we minister, I pray that we will be faithful in the proclamation of your gospel. In your name I pray. Amen.